I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prairie Tales, a podcast that tells the story of our prairie home in Warren County, Illinois. Prairie Tales is brought to you by the Buchanan Center for the Arts as part of its ongoing mission to promote the arts in our region. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Prairie Tales. Hello, Prairie Tales listeners. This is Mary Osborne. Fellow podcaster Kathy Shagrin and I are thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Lewis L. Gould this morning. Dr. Gould is the Eugene C. Barker Professor Emeritus in American History at the University of Texas. He is the author of 20 books, including Four Hats in the Ring, the 1912 Election, and the Birth of Modern American Politics, and the Modern American Presidency. He is also a pioneer in the field of First Ladies Studies. Today, we've asked him to share some personal history and discuss his connection to the play Arsenic and Old Lace to help us kick off Season 3 of Prairie Tales. Thank you, Dr. Gould, for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Um, My mother's name was Carmen Letitia Lewis, and she was born July 1st, 1911, in Bay City, Texas. Her family then moved to Houston, where her father became city attorney and president of the local draft board in World War II. Um, She went to San Jacinto High in Houston and dated such people as Roy Hoffeis, the creator of the Houston Astrodome. She went on to Rice Institute or University, graduating in 1932, when she had a government job and was the sole support of her family, earning $12 a week in the bottom of the Depression. Now, she decided uh, that she wanted to go into the theater and go north. And this was a big move for a woman in Texas, which was much more provincial even than it is now. So some of her relatives never forgave her for going north and eventually, as it turns out, marrying a Yankee. Now, she wanted to be an actress, and she had a small part in a play that was reviewed in the New York Times. Um, but it turned out that her acting talent was limited. So she decided she would go backstage. She went first to work for a guy named Dwight Deer Wyman, whose grandmother was the orig- one of the original daughters of John Deer. So there's a local connection. But she worked for him and his production company in the show On Your Toes in 1936 where Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart. And in, when I was growing up it, in our family, it was Dick Rogers and Larry Hart, and I never thought of them as any other way. The next show she worked on was Knickerbocker Holiday, which opened in 1938. She went on, out on the road as they prepared the show, um, and Joshua Logan was the director. It's mainly remembered for the song, September Song, because it was not a hit. It only ran uh, 168 performances. Now, she was already keeping company, living with my father by that time, but they were not married. Her father was running for mayor of Houston, and it would have been a toxic move if they publicized that she had married a Yankee. So they waited until after he ran third in the election and got married on November 25th, 1938, and I came along the next September. 
After that, she joined the production firm of Lindsay and Krauss uh, as an assistant and was assistant stage manager for Arsenic and Old Lace. She put $250 into the show, which may not sound like much, but it's the equivalent of $5,000 today. Um, and she used to talk to us about Jose Ferrer, whom she called Joe and Joshua Logan. So I kind of grew up on the fringes of show business. Six degrees of separation. So after Knickerbocker Holiday failed, um, at some point in 1940, she became connected with Lindsay and Krauss as they prepared to put on Arsenic and Old Lace. Now the story is that the writer, Joseph Kesselring, intended it to be a heavy melodrama, a dark, brooding mystery based on events that had happened in Connecticut where somebody had had a boarding house and murdered some of their residents. But Lindsay and Krauss persuaded him that it would be better as a comedy. Now I can't verify that, but that's the, the, lot, the line and the story about it. Mm -hmm. So as they did in those days, they went on the road to tryouts like Philadelphia, Washington, Boston. Uh, and they're in Boston in late December uh, the show will open in New York on January 10th, 1941. So here we come with my brother's account of what happened. The play was in Boston for the live performances before they brought it to Broadway. So I guess they were in Boston in mid-late December. Was I on the road with them or was I under my grandmother's care? Well, I don't know. I was one, so I don't know. <laughs> anyway, at the end of Act One, they have the dramatic scene where Jonathan Brewster kills someone. The doomed person is up against a piece of furniture like a hall tree with candles framing the top portion of the hall tree. Brewster is set to cut the person with a big sharp knife. The scene is supposed to generate a big gas from the audience and then the curtain comes down. The problem in Boston was the scene got laughter, not gas. Everyone in the audience could see that the person was not going to be knifed or slashed. With the climax of Act One not working, the future of the show was in doubt. We then get the scene of the producer, the director, the stage manager in a hotel room in downtown Boston. The bourbon is flowing and everyone is struggling to come up with an idea. The young assistant stage manager, Mom, throws out a suggestion for two more words to be added to the scripts. Lights, please. All the lights in the theater go dark. The only lights in the theater are the four candles on the hall tree. The knife is highly polished and it gleams in the candlelight. When they do the scene the next night, the result is what they want. A large glistening knife in a candlelight on the stage and a huge gasp from the audience. Curtain, end of act one. She was awarded a 2% share of the producer's Revenue. The movie with Cary Grant does not include this scene. Your prop production probably does not include the scene. Open candles in a theater production probably doesn't pass the fire department smell test. The last royalty check came in sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. I heard the amount was $2.50. We don't know what the overall amount was, but the family legend was that it put at least me through college. That's... That's so incredible. That's a great tale. I, 
What a family history. And, well, and yay for your mother for coming up with the solution. Well, yeah. I <laughs> I wonder how many plays are changed by an event like that. Because I think a lot of things open or they, they go on tour. Mm -hmm. You know, they try them out before they ever get to Broadway. And they make changes like that. So It's an evolving process. I oh, understand. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the questions I was going to ask you, which I think I already know the answer to, you really have no recollection of going to the theater. And uh, in this, I have a, a script here with me, which is different from the radio script that we are using mm -hmm. in the show. But it says that the show opened at the um, Fulton Theater mm -hmm. in New York. So you have, do you have any memories of that place? I was one and a half. Yeah. My, I don't have any conscious memories until I see my middle brother a year or two later. And were you all living in New York? Well, yeah, we lived in Greenwich Village. In Greenwich Village. In fact, the family legend, I just the legend, we lived in a house that had been owned by Louisa May Alcott. Now, I, you know, this yeah, is... I, anecdote, yeah. I'm not going to take it to the bank, but... <laughs> yeah, it was a brownstone on McDougal Street. Hmm. And I used to walk across the street and get... My parents were smokers, so they would send me over to buy cigarettes and I would get a lemon ice while I was across the street, a lemon thing in a little mm -hmm. cup that was very delicious. How but long? That, well, go ahead. Well, that's that's about my memories of Germanish Village. And then how long did you live in New York? I think I was six or seven, and after the war, they decided that they wanted to go to the suburbs. So we bought an old farm in Stamford, Connecticut, which had been... They'd taken out the topsoil for the Merritt Parkway. So it was like a, a hollow out place, which made it wonderful for three kids. But it was quite a ways away from downtown. And I think my mother was rather lonely out there mm. with three boys. She later said she'd been trapped 25 years in a men's locker room. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and how old was your mother when she passed away? She died in 1991, so she would have been... A bit short of her 80th birthday. So, so how how long was she with the the show? How long did she I serve think as stage well, manager? It ran fourteen hundred performances. It, it so, went on until nineteen forty four, right? Um, and then did thirteen hundred more in London. I don't think she went. Well, especially with the war, I don't think she went over there. Um, I just don't know. I mean, there were a lot, if I could go back for an hour and talk to her, I have oh. lots more questions to ask. But, you know, it's just, it's your mother. You, right. just, you know, you don't right. think this is historical. Did she ever go on to do any other theatrical work? Stage In Stanford, she, there was a group called the Connecticut Playmakers, and she staged a couple of shows. One called A Simple Case of Murder, which was a farce from the 30s, mm -hmm. and we went to rehearsals and watched her work. But I think she, I think she really regretted having to leave the theater because of, well, she became a full-time mother. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, did she have any favorite actresses or films or, or plays? Um, I don't remember. I think People told me when I was working on a book about my father um, that they rode around Greenwich Village on a motorcycle. He had bright red hair, and I think. Hello, they knew I'm Mary Gene Osborne. I'm Dan Kathy Johnson. Shagrin. 
And I'm Stacia Madden. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prairie Tales, a podcast that tells the story of our prairie home in Warren County, Illinois. Prairie Tales is brought to you by the Buchanan Center for the Arts as part of its ongoing mission to promote the arts in our region. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Prairie Tales. It's like when you order scripts, they come, and typically any script that you order always begins with the original Broadway cast. They want you to know who the Broadway cast was. Unfortunately, it does not have the crew, which I was really sorry that it didn't. But I know that when this began on Broadway, and this says it opened on August 18th, 1941. That's the date that it shows here, but that could be... I have January 10th. Right, so that, I don't know, that could be after some... Yeah, yeah, I've never seen it. But there are some gems in here of actors and actresses who who ended up subsequently being in the movie version. Mm -hmm. Gina Dare, Josephine Hull, uh, Boris Karloff. Yes, Yes. and they do a lot of Boris Karloff jokes. They do. His name was William Henry Pratt. Oh, I did not know that. Um, I think he was married five times. <laughs> well, I was but, wondering... But, uh, that was part of the comic aspect of the show. I yeah, think. and I read that um, Boris Karloff at the time, when they went to do the movie, they pulled over some of the actors from the stage mm-hmm. play, Josephine Hall and Gina Deer. But Boris Karloff could not get released from whatever movie studio contract that he yeah. was in. They would not let him. Mm-hmm. And that's when Raymond Massey was cast. Yeah, that's that standard... Uh, Right. If he was with another studio, they would have... So your mother him. worked with Boris Karloff. I, as far as I can tell, she was at the original. She was there with So him. I was going to ask you, but I'm guessing maybe not. Did your mother have any interesting stories to tell you about Boris Karloff? Uh, no. No, not, that's not too that bad. I remember. No. The one funny story is that, uh, this is not about the theater, but um, my parents met at a place called Louis Bergen's Theater Bar and Restaurant and then started living together, which was something in the 1930s. And they had an argument one night when I was standing there, and my father said, let that be a lesson to you, Lou. Don't marry women you pick up in bars. <laughs> How did your and mother she said, take Jack! <laughs> what did your dad do for a living? He was the the- uh, television critic for the New York Times Holy in the 1950s, cow. 60s. Yeah. Wow. So he started with the Herald Tribune and... I think they started living, I don't, these dates are very vague, but they were living together by 1937 when he moved from the Tribune to the Times where he stayed until he retired in 1972. And of course Mortimer Brewster, who's sort of the protagonist or the hero of, uh, of the show of Arsenic and Old Lace, is also a drama critic. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I wonder if your mother had anything to do with that. <laughs> no. That reflected, I, I assume, Kessel Ring's take on drama critics since yes. he had some flops before Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm. Wow. Incidentally, I noticed, maybe you know this, but the title comes from Frank Sullivan, who is a humorist mm-hmm. who wrote books about Mr. Arbuthnot, the cliche expert. He wrote a book called Broccoli and Old Lace, and they adapted it to Arsenic. Mm. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. 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 So have you ever done any theater, any acting or directing? <laughs> Would you like to? <laughs> Would you like to? Yes. yes, we have a place where you could work. The simple answer is no, no. No, I had no dramatic aspiration. I think I was in some Christmas pageants and a senior vaudeville at Greenwich 
Connecticut High School, but I played the Those piano. Those obligatory no. things that you no, do as a no, child. No, no, Though theatrical things would have helped when I had classes of 500 at the University of Texas. I, I tapped my inner muse to hold their attention. No, no. Um, I just never predisposed that way. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think so many times it is a predisposition, I think, for many people who end up working in even community theater, they know at an early age that it's just something yeah. they are drawn to. They're going to do it, which, yeah. Did that happen for your mother? I assume so. She never really talked about her motivation that led her to leave Texas. Mm -hmm. And it really, in 1933 or 34, this was a cultural move, a real mm -hmm. shock. And my relatives in, in Texas, of which there are dozens now, really, I think, never forgave her. They would make snide remarks about you boys this and you boys that and your mother didn't really. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And it's almost a double whammy. Not only did she move, but she went to, into theater. Yeah. and then yeah. Which does not always have the greatest respect out there. It's no, well, the theater actors were sort of semi-disreputable for a long time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what and what brought you to Monmouth? I'm well, assuming. my first wife died in 2012, mm -hmm. and I was at loose ends, and Austin, Texas was then approaching three million people. And so getting around and being reminded of everything we had lived, we had been married 41 years. And then Stacy Cordry said, why don't you come up here? It's a nice small town. We'll take care of you. And it was absolutely the perfect size, the perfect place. And then over time, I met Jean Robeson, and we decided to get. And Stacy was a friend, or? Oh, she was a former student. Oh, former she, student. She wrote her book on Alice Roosevelt Longworth. That uh, mm -hmm. was her dissertation, which we did it under my direction. But it was hers. All I did was guide her. I just yeah. keep going. So, were you a history? I was a history professor. Yes, yeah. I was gathering that. Yeah. So I, I came in 1967 and retired in 1998. Had 10,000 students, because we, in Texas, this is minutia, but you got to take us six hours of American history to graduate. So with a campus of about 35,000 undergraduates, they wanted courses. Well, you couldn't do courses of 25, or you'd have a faculty of 200. So we did big lecture sections. I, would, I was in a class, classroom that held about 500. And I did that for 15 years before I ran out of gas, because it does take a lot out of you to hold the attention. Of you have a favorite five. favorite period? Oh, I late 19th century, okay, early 20th century. I did a lot of work on Theodore Roosevelt, which well, is there's why, another connection. Yeah. Why, which is why Stacy got involved. I said somebody should do Alice, Alice. and she said okay. And poor Ethel. Went. Ethel never gets any attention. No. What? <laughs> Ethel, his other daughter. Oh yeah. Well, poor somebody Ethel. should do a biography of Ethel. I wrote a biography of Edith mm -hmm. for my, I, I created a series called Modern First Ladies with the Kansas Press. And I wrote three or four of the books and other people wrote the other ten or so. Um, but Ethel would be a grand subject. She was socially conscious, uh, very tolerant. Um, she taught a class for African Americans when she was in high school, which her mother used described deprecatingly with the N-word. Mm -hmm. So I had to say, well, 
But Ethel, Ethel really does need a biography. Historians are always saying, well, people need a biography. <laughs> we we got to keep working. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what, do you, what, what keeps you busy here in Monmouth? Reading. Yes. And watching British mysteries. I've mean, oh. got Prime Video and we're uh. Silent Witness and Endeavor mm -hmm. and Inspector Lewis. We can just keep going on. Yeah. New tricks and all that. Mm -hmm. So there's lots to watch. But I'm, I had a stroke in 2014 mm -hmm. and it sort of took away my stamina and ability to do any intellectual work. So I've stopped doing it cold. I don't do anything other than this, which is really family. Uh, yeah. So mostly I read mysteries. And, and delightful for us to get to know you and, and to get that connection. How did, how did Mary, how did you, um, how did you make the connection? Um, uh, Jean is a PEO, and we're in Chapter E together, and yes. then Christine is, uh, Christine yeah. Gilbert is well, the one. Well, I saw the here. ad, I mean, the notice. Yes, yes. And I, so I said to Christine, by the way, <laughs> come to find out, and she said, oh, well, will you do something? So here we are. And here we are. Wow. I can't tell you how, um, how how great it makes me feel to know that we have this local connection. And I know it's a generation removed and, yeah, and well, everything, but, but, but still, not. that... Well, the, the point is that the success of the show was not inevitable. I mean, yes. when they first started writing it, it didn't mean it's going to be a hit for the enduring ages. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of stumbles along the way, and this was one of them. That people made it happen mm -hmm. so that people watching the show can realize it was not cast in stone. It's the result of human endeavor, collaboration, propinquity, luck. And yes, you have many a hit. Things I mean, are, yeah. And there are many shows like Knickerbocker Holiday, should have Walter Houston, yeah. Kurt Vile, Maxwell Anderson, Wonderful Songs. Boom. Boom is right. Yeah. Maybe we should tell the listeners, too, if we're going to plug the show a little bit, that our arsenic and old lace is a little different from other arsenic and old laces in that, of course, in the gallery, we don't have the room for a proscenium stage and a large set, which, you know, a set is part of that show. It's a big, beautiful, old Victorian house that's run by these two wonderful sisters who have an interesting charity that they do. <laughs> <laughs> if you can call it a charity. They, they view it as a charity. So we couldn't do that at the Buchanan Center. So what, what we are doing with our show is we've turned it into um, a 1944 radio adaptation. And we were able to find an online script and we're using that. And we've sort of uh, given it a local flair. Uh, that we don't really want to reveal too much right now, but it's it's very much a local flair with Maple City Radio in, um, in cooperation with the NBC studios in New York City. And so all of that is fictional, of course, but that's what we're doing. And so we have some local commercials and local announcers, and then we move into the actual play, which will be performed as a radio show with uh, live sound effects. Well, in the 1940s, that was quite common to adapt Broadway plays to the radio format. Oh, yes. And then radio gave you the imagination, which television doesn't do, right. to visualize what was going on. I read, a, I read something as I was doing the research that said in, in the 1940s, radio was king and NBC was everywhere. Yeah, well, they, I, had, 
they had two networks, yeah. the red and the blue, I think. And then they, they had to spin it off, and that's where ABC came from. Ah. But it was CBS and NBC, and later on ABC. Wow. Well, you may not want to be in a show, but maybe you'll come see the show. Oh, Friday night. We, <laughs> oh, good. We've already got okay. tickets. I, I couldn't stay away. You know? Oh, that's wonderful. This is a walk I hope we do it lane. proud for you. What? I hope we do it proud. Oh, I'm sure you will. Yeah. Break a leg. You we know have great, say. great people in this show, I have to say. We had wonderful turnout for auditions, and we have got a really exciting cast, and uh, we're in rehearsals now, of course. Well, let's see. When this airs in October, we'll still be in rehearsal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, don't change the show. It will refer to Teddy Roosevelt. Absolutely. But what you should know is that he absolutely hated his nickname. If you knew him well, you never called him anything but Theodore. Oh, Just yeah. from the back of your mind. Um, I didn't hear you come in. Hello there. This must be <laughs> Gene. Gene. Hello. Oh. Hello, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. We've been having a grand time, I think. We have. Well, did you get your podcast done? Well, we're oh, doing we're it right doing now. It. We're, but we're me, still let, recording. Let me add a plug. Yes. Any fan of Arsenic and Old Lace should come see the production. It will be terrific. I want to add a little small thing. I put it in the program, too. That interestingly enough, after they did the play and then they moved on to the movie, and Cary Grant was cast in the role of Mortimer Brewster, and in later years he wrote, that it was his least favorite performance he ever did in his whole life. But it's one of my favorites. I love the show. I love the movie. Um, he thought his performance was over the top. But I, I thought it was... It was supposed to be over... I mean, Arsene yeah. Lace, if anything, is over the top. Yes, top. it's over the top. So we Well, that just shows you actors don't always know well, what and, their best performance and it, is. It also shows you how he viewed himself, you know. That um, and before that he had done bringing up baby, which yeah, also was over the top. But um, well, he was a great physical comedian. I yeah, mean, the moves he could do and the not many people. Yeah. I mean, you don't always. I, I don't think. think I don't think um, I don't, so Americans maybe don't think of Cary Grant that like now. If you ask somebody, right. they might think of this really suave, suave individual, yes. and that's not well, necessarily. Well, the if right you go back to pic pictures like Charade and to Catch a Thief, mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. he will have physical comedy just. Woven in there, you just mm -hmm. and you think, how can a person do that right. so successfully? But I, I've always loved this show. When I was um, studying at Western back in the '70s, it was one of the very first shows we did when I was a theater major. I wasn't in the show, but I fell in love then, and then I fell in love with the movie, and we're just really thrilled that we can bring it to the BCA. So make sure that you buy your tickets. Um, we have performances on October 21st and October 22nd. Um, doors open at 6.30 and the performance starts at 7. So we hope to see you there. Until next time. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie and you too might hear a tale.